Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Facebook. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Matt Brown, President of Klutz and Senior Vice President of Scholastic Inc. Matt was recently part of the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma in November, and we're glad to have him on today as a guest. Matt Brown, welcome to Creativity and Play. Oh, thanks so much. Very happy to be here. Well, to get started, if you would tell us what Klutz is. It obviously sounds like it's a great creative name, therefore <laughs> doing creative things. But tell our listeners what it is you guys do and what's sort of your mission around kids and, and play. Yeah, great question. Uh, as you may have known, I've, known, I've just started uh, at Klutz um, just in the last five months as, as the new president taking over for John Cassidy, who is the founder and CEO for, for 30 years. And uh, Klutz pioneered something called the Books Plus category, which is a book plus some kind of activity. And the very first one was the juggling book, maybe the most sort of iconic, which was a book with actually the juggling balls attached to it. And uh, before that, if you wanted to learn to juggle, you had to buy a book and you had to, you know, buy the ball separately. And since then, you know, the, the company has really pioneered um, all kind of a- different areas of play in this sort of combination of book plus activity. So it's everything from making friendship bracelets to um, flowers to crazy contraptions from Lego. So it kind of spans the, the gamut. And the... The, the mission, the thing that we're we're about, is helping um, actually kids of all ages. Although uh, we do certainly focus on on kids four to twelve, uh, develop creative confidence through play and laughter. Um, and part of our real secret sauce to the to the Klutz magic is is our pretty sort of unusual little off kilter sense of humor that uh, we always get credit for for making. It's easy to kind of get into things that might be a little challenging and, and laugh your way through it and ultimately surprise yourself in what you can do. Well, um, I know that you play a lot, Matt, and <laughs> also that you play and you add movement to your play, and I wonder if uh, you can talk about the connection between play and movement. Yeah, um, good good question. I think um, uh, without it. Get, getting too sciencey since I'm not a not, not a scientist. Um, okay. I I think that you know I'm a big believer in in a lot of the work that's come up recently that that uh, that the body and you know the mind and and ostensibly you know sort of the spirit are all intertwined and it's a bit of a of a um, a crutch I think a uh, sort of historical crutch to segregate those things and try to say, okay, here's what's going on cognitively, here's what's going on social, emotionally, here's what's going on, you know, physically, and those are traditional classic domains. Um, and and we did some work, I did some work, um, you know, most recently before starting here with, with uh, some great folks at, at Hasbro, where we really broke that stuff down and really identified that, that um, in, in fact, all sort of play-based experiences Maybe it's not all, but 99.99% are integrative. And so um, when we think about cognitive development, we're thinking at the same time about the physicality of the play experience and how that is wired into 
um, you know, the brain and the nervous system and how all those things um, collaborate, right, for deep learning and learning down at the process level, everything from, from you know, sort of the more simple processes like um, exploration and discovery through the much more um, complex ones like experimentation and, and imagination and creativity. Uh, so I, I tend to see it, you know, from, from that vantage point that it's, it's deeply integrative and you really need, um, for the most part, to, to bring, um, you know, motion into, um, you know, the play experience. It's, it, it, I think there is truth, you know, that, that it's not 100% that way. I mean, there's all kinds of things about daydreaming and other types of, of play-based experiences that are very um, soft and quiet. Um, but, I, but I do think that we, we need more, <laughs> we probably need uh, culturally to, um, to sort of move the pendulum a little bit more in favor of more physicality in our play. I think we've lost um, some of that, and that's been to our sort of overall uh, detriment. Yes, and even in daydreams you can move. So, <laughs> so yeah. often, often it's said that even when you don't move and you're imagining yourself moving, you get benefits. So, there's no doubt about so, it. So, appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. We've talked in several uh, interviews recently on our show about the importance and connection of creativity and play in education and school, and also where we fall short in some of those areas, whether it's recess being cut or physical education classes being cut or arts being cut in the role of play in, in arts and music. And how, how does Putz's work intersect with promoting this in schools and education beyond the, well, either with the products, through the products, or through other ways as well? Yeah. Um, well, in a in sort of a direct line, I, I don't, I wish I could tell you, but I don't. I don't know. I guess is the is the the short answer. Um, in that um, being here so um, for such a short period of time, I don't know if Clutz is um, being um, you know sort of picked up ad hoc by you know teachers or administrators and brought into the classroom setting. Um, and I know that we haven't fully uh, sort of connected into um, Scholastic's educational. Uh, Group, so I I have visions for that, so I I, I will be getting there, um, but but what I do know and where we are um, present is in all kinds of um, uh, camps, um, you know, sort of across the across the country, um, and and even in some sort of play centers and things like like that, and and what I guess I would do is I sort of step back a little bit and and say that uh, that there are sort of three different ways in which we learn, right? So methodologies or modalities of learning. Um, and so you have play-based learning, we have experiential learning, and we have instruction. And each is important, each intersects and can support the other. Um, but I think when we step back, or at least when I do, and look at, at the educational system um, overall, right? So these are large movements, right? Um, I think you know what we can see is that it's actually been um, almost a you know a kind of a a rush you know to to focus exclusively on instruction and removing experience and play-based learning out of the system, and and sometimes that is you you can see that by saying okay music classes have been cut or recesses have been cut, which is just 
mean, recess being cut is is <laughs> is very naughty, and you know, on on many mm-hmm. levels, um, it it has you know profound effects. We know science, scientifically on kids' ability to to attend, you know, within the classroom setting, right, and to um, uh, perform high exec- executive functioning um, is dependent in part on being physical, right? So if you're not physical, then you have a hard time you know, paying attention, attending, um, having emotional, you know, control over yourself, being able to ask questions, and I mean, all that sort of stuff. So the sort of basic functioning inside of a classroom setting is augmented by physical play. That's That's not even, you know, the, the primary benefit, of course, physical play, it's social, it's, you know, you get your body healthy. I mean, there's all kinds of things. So it's very, very naughty that, that we even think about taking recess out. But it, sort of in addition to that is by that, those are things that are sort of, I think, iconic to see. But within the classroom itself, um, when we when we use instruction as the primary or, m- most cases, the exclusive way to learn, um, we are handicapping both teachers and kids and their ability to fully learn uh you know what needs to be learned and that's really core processes and and a whole range of different skills and we i think are um we are mistakenly focused on on a narrow frame of of knowledge right which so if the pyramid starts at at processes then skills then knowledge or information um that the knowledge information is more easily testable, so we we focus there. But um, unfortunately, at the um, at the sort of you know risk of losing uh, the more fundamental learning, which is the most powerful. Uh, so so anyway, long way of saying is that um, you know taking play out of it, the classroom itself and then out of the um, outside of the classroom is um, I think been um proven already despite you know what some of our politicians and, and leaders do has been proven to be you know a profound mistake. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Matt, when you're talking about you mentioned about play-based learning and experiential learning and I'm wondering what you see as the differences or the samenesses in those two because I see that often I see play leads to skill building and mm-hmm. um, a greater ability to take in information or in greater ease with taking in information. So starting with play is yeah. key to a lot of our learning and should I, I believe should be more incorporated into our schools and I, 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 and I learning totally in general. Yeah, so what do you totally see as the difference between play-based learning and experiential learning, since you seem to divide those into two categories? Yeah, there's there's some people who will, um, which I think is totally legit, is to actually um, fuse them together. Um, I like to segregate them, and I'll use a, an analogy, um, because as I, as I said earlier, it turns out everything's really integrated, but to understand it, sometimes you have to break it apart and create some artificial, right, um, separation, and then, then for sure, you know, totally agree that experience and play. There's a lot where where it overlaps, and it looks like the same thing, or two things are happening simultaneously. And the same can be true for instruction and play. I mean, and I can, like as an example, a lot of the Klutz books um, and procs we make have instruction that then lead to play, that then bring you back to getting some instruction, and then go lead to play. Right. So it actually can be these 
quite integrated experiences. But by way of analogy, what I what I, I like to say or use is let's let's just imagine um, you know you have a teacher and and the teacher holds up a a picture of a T-Rex, you know, and with the letters spelled out T-Rex, and they hold up for the class, and like, here's the T-Rex, it's a dinosaur, and here's how you spell it. Well, that's instruction, right? So it's an extrinsic um, exchange of information from an authority figure down to someone who's, you know, has less information or less skills or, or less competence, okay? Then let's say, you know, uh, parents, you know, take their kid to the Natural History Museum, and the kid walks in and sees this gigantic you know, T-Rex skeleton. Well, that's an experience, right? So no no instruction needed. You know, you see how big it is, the teeth, the posture, you know, all of that. So so that's experiential. Now let's give that same child um, a uh, a set of dinosaur, um, you know, toys, right, and action figures, or maybe a dinosaur costume. And then the kid starts to act out, right, and make up stories using both fantasy, you know, elements and real elements, like they, you know, the child might know actually all the names, or is it a carnivore or herbivore? Well, that's play, right? So so each one is, you know, distinct, and you actually can put all those things together um, and have a, you know, a broad uh, exposure to dinosaurs through instruction, experience, and play, right? And, and, and I like, in that analogy, I think it shows each one does have its own, um, you know, uh, importance, right? Each sort of modality, and each can support the other one. Um, and in some ways, you know, imagine you, you never take a child to the Natural History Museum. You're like, well, we sort of missed out, you know? It's like everything's on a picture that's, uh, you know, six inches tall, right? Um, and if we didn't let a kid play with it, how does the child then incorporate that um, that deep knowledge, right? I mean, we all know about, you know, transferring information just auditorially or, or visually, you have low low retention rate on that kind of stuff. So play is that that type of um, learning that uh, helps, um, you know, I think, profoundly put you know knowledge you know into sort of the deep uh, the deep uh, recesses of your mind and body. Um, so anyway, that's my little metaphor for the difference between uh, the three, but how they all support each other. No, you're making me think about cause one of the Klutz um, books and. Projects that I'm familiar with or activities is the face painting, and so yep. I've been with a lot of groups of kids and parents where we're face painting with with the book and in hand, yep. and so you're giving me a greater appreciation of what that might bring into the play. Yeah. Um, after you just what you just said, thank you. Oh, you got it. Now you, as we said at the beginning, are newly in your role as president of Clutch, but you've also led and founded several other organizations including LeapFrog, Bitcoin, Primordial, and had various roles within them. And this current business and, and, and the other ones as well, you know, are themselves working on creative activities. But what do you do as a leader to tap into your employees' creativity, whether or not they're in a traditionally creative role, to say, you know, this is important and we want to encourage and develop this deliberately in the organization? How do you do that as a leader? Yeah, good, excellent question. <laughs> that's a, that's one of those sixty-four thousand dollar questions you got right there. Um, and uh, I have to say, uh, sort of all, yeah, sort of candor that that's a, I think, a continuing work in progress. And and both for me and for for the team is to 
uh, continue to like try different experiments and find things that you know that do work and and sort of chuck the things that that don't. Um, I can maybe give you a couple of examples recently of things that we've been doing that I think have uh, have helped. Um, the uh, uh, as an example in, in a business like ours, um, there and this is probably true for for most businesses. There's a time where you need to um, you know uh, sort of judge a you know uh, an an idea right and determine if it's worthy or or not and. And that, in particular, can be a, a uh, difficult moment in time for the creator of the idea, and then and and then the other folks who are actually looking at it, right? And oftentimes, other folks may actually have the authority over the sort of execution. And what we did here recently is is that um, when we have those sessions, um, we first before we get to the sort of final you know, sort of answer, we have everyone, <clears throat> including sort of the judges, look at each idea. And think about how they can make that idea greater. Um, and by doing that, you um, orient people towards divergent thinking, right? Open-ended, creative thinking. Um, and and there's, I think, some well-worn sort of tools about you know things like play speak, like where you say yes and, not no but, you know, that type of thing. Um, and and that's worked out beautifully because it really puts everyone on the same sort of side of the thing, you know, looking at it on the table going, okay, how do I make thing, that thing as great as possible? And and if it can't become, you know, great enough to, to do, it tends to be at that point more self-evident, right? And so the person who, or the team that was accountable for, for generating, you know, the, the idea, after they feel like they've got all the support from everyone trying to make it as great as possible, and if we can't get there, you know, for the most part, we find out that, that, uh, that uh, we all feel good about the effort, and then then we move on. Um, so that's that's one very tactical thing that we'll be doing. I think um, you know another sort of management slash leadership thing is to um, is to work on um, creating the space, in both mental and physical. I think it's actually both those things uh, to be creative. Um, so, so that has to do with being very disciplined about um, about how you run the business and making sure that that within the daily grind of getting the job done and getting you know customer issues resolved and product shipped out the door and and all those things that that have to take place that are very convergent um, that you build in um, the the space right to step away from that and and be be in a creative space um and so you know without it you just keep running 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 becoming increasingly reactive and less um you know creative and and responsive uh so yeah and and then there's probably a hundred really good books that have been trying to <laughs> trying to answer that question you know it's uh it ain't easy but but we're doing well here i'm i'm very uh, I, I walked into a situation here, Klutz, where there is deep creativity, and and I've fortunately been able to be in a position just to add some some tweaks and uh, and, and to try to dial it up a little bit. But uh, but you know, Klutz is is pretty uh, been pretty good at that. I appreciate those 
specific examples because I think you know so often we sort of talk in the the great generality of how wonderful creativity is, but often get stuck on what does it look like in practice every day in an organizational setting. So knowing it's an ongoing process, but at the same time, you know, hearing those specifics is great, and thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Matt, what do you think makes it so difficult for people to bring play into their work? Oh. Um, I have to... uh, that's a good question, Marius. I have to uh, think a little bit because you know, I've everywhere I've been, <laughs> we've been playing at work. Uh, other, well, I guess I used to be a lawyer, uh, and there's not a lot, a lot, a mm-hmm. lot of play, play there. Um, maybe uh, sir, the, the thing that comes to the top of mind to me is is the perception that play is frivolous, right? And so, you know, when I think either it can be bosses or it can be colleagues, and when they see somebody um, that, especially something where it's overtly play, right? Like it's those guys over playing the ping pong, or they're outside, you know, taking a walk, or, or whatever they're doing, where where um, it, it clearly they, someone has shifted from from work mode to play mode. That um, that there is, I think. I've seen, you know, resentment. I've seen, you know, judgment. I've seen all kinds of things, um, and I think that's a limitation on the people, um, you know, who are, who are exercising those judgments um, to, you know, not, you know, fully see the, you know, sort of the, the power of of play, both in, in its rejuvenative power, right? So that's the take a break, but also within the construct of the of the work itself. Um, and and the, here's a good one. Um, you know, are you in a culture, in a business culture, where laughter and humor is integrated into the the daily routine of of work? And and uh, to me, if it is, that's a sign that people are playing even while they're working. Okay, um, as opposed to um, you know cultures where where you, you've been, we've all been in those businesses where it feels kind of oppressed and. Uh, or or it's really intense, it's super intense and there's just no laughter. I mean, there's all kinds of different manifestations, but um, I tend to see those you know, places where where you know the the play part is, is devalued, and that tends to, in my experience, burn people out. I mean, having in the lawyer world, you know, that's what you get. You know, it's just many many billable hours and not so much uh, play within it, and then people burn out and they and they disappear or they they move on. Um, so. I guess to, to round it back, because I think maybe just a lot of leaders and managers and colleagues don't yet, um, you know, see the see its value uh, and perceive it as as frivolous, uh, and, and that you know, which is, I think, uh, a battle we're all, you know, combating and trying to elevate the dialogue and and for people to see the real value in play. I, I remember Daryl Hammond um, when we interviewed him the. Director Kaboom. Yeah, um, and when we interviewed him about um, play and creativity, um, he mentioned he said, "Well, we do a lot of serious play, Kaboom, because we have mm-hmm. to <laughs> we have to move from the playground into our work and get some things completed." And so he he was talking about serious play that we do a lot yeah. of there. So I like that. I mean, Stuart, if you guys probably know Stuart Brown, and and uh, yeah, I I think 
you know, his perspective on on play is is you know I think uh, you know influenced deeply by his background right, as a as a psychologist and a you know and a doctor and 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 I think he has a really good insight there about um, the the opposite of play is depression, not work, right? So um, it, so that you can be, you know, this is probably what Daryl's saying about serious play, like you can be in the office, you can be with your colleagues, you can be doing your work and being deeply productive and moving the agenda forward and, you know, making profits or whatever you're doing on the, on the business. Um, but you can do that through the spirit and activity of play, you know, where, where it's intrinsically motivated and you and it's giving you joy and and you are and there's spontaneity you know and an, an ability to deal with new information with with you know grace and not stress right and and so you know when I think about play I think about like how does it get sort of woven into the the DNA of a culture um, and and that culture can be one that's you know at work it could be one that's at rest it could be one that's on vacation you know but and uh so it's I, I tend to think of it a little bit that way and and again um takes a lot of uh attention and support um to to manifest it it uh sometimes there's some people who get together and they just they have it in them and 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 it happens and it's a beautiful thing but in other settings um the intention is there but you actually have to pay attention to it to cultivate it. Thank you. Yeah. You you also serve or have served on a couple of nonprofit boards that also shared what, the mission of what we've been talking about, the importance of, of play and creative expression in children. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about those organizations and, and who they are and what they do. Well, sure. Um, there was... Um, an organization called Plain for Keeps, um, and Plain for Keeps, um, a couple of years ago, um, emerged into the um, American Children's Museum. Um, so it's now a a part of of a broader nonprofit. And the objective of Plain for Keeps was was primarily to be a repository for all of the critical thinking and science. Um, and, and academic research and, and the like on play, and then be a um, disseminator of of the message, you know, of the of the power of of play. Uh, and and had it's great. It was a great organization, and and still is. Um, you know, it's essentially a board of of folks that support the American Children's Museum, um, and it's a lot of. Great academics, um, Ed Klugman being my, you know, favorite, and he's one of the founders. He's just an amazing person. From uh, I think he's now Professor Emeritus at uh, Wheelock, um, and then John Lee was one of the co-founders, and he's now the I think the CEO of Callaway, and he he started, um, you know, um, uh, what became RC2 uh, Toy Company, um, and uh, it's a learning curve and. And so anyway, so that was one organization. Another one was uh, or is Real Life, um, which it's a, a good friend of mine, uh, Lauren Taylor, is just a wonderful person. And what he um, did here in the States, and then he amazingly a couple of years ago um, moved to Bulgaria and, and did this in Bulgaria. Uh, but he would take um, at-risk uh, youth. turns out here in the 
Bay Area, he was um, getting a lot of African-American kids from inner-city areas and then Native American kids um, from out on some of the poor reservations and bringing them together um, out in the country where um, they would live together and and, uh, and learn filmmaking. And and they would create films and, and tell their, their own narratives. Um, and yeah, the point for Lauren was both the creative um, output and having people, you know, who truly are, you know, have had you know, deep obstacles and and uh, are in you know really you know tough situations, you know, find a voice and also find a skill because um, he you know, his whole thing was like, well, if I can get you a skill, if you could be a, you know a camera operator or you could you know, write a screenplay, whatever, you could have a career and you could break free of this. Uh, so. So that's what he does, and, and that's what the group does, and, and it's really beautiful. And they've got a lot of their shorts, like at Sundance and on HBO and things like that. Well, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Matt Brown is the president of Klutz and the senior vice president of Scholastic, Inc. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Facebook as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you.